The last few weeks, uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Particularly, we've been, uh, we started a couple weeks ago in Luke 3, and we've been talking about um, Jesus, right? We're talking about Jesus and who he is and what we can learn of who he is in the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke 3, we discussed Jesus as the prophesied one. In Luke 4, just last week, we discussed what it meant for Jesus to be a man, right? to be a human, to, to be living and breathing and experiencing all the things that we experience. And tonight, following the trend, we're going to be in Luke 5. And I want, I want to start tonight by just giving you the title of the message so that you can think about it. Because the way tonight's going to go is I'm going to give you the, the title, and then we're going to go through this time together in the, in the Word, and then we're going to come back to it. So I want to give it to you now, just think about it. The title is Jesus as Worthy. Now in this series, we're actually going to see that title come up a few times, Jesus as Worthy. And, and think of tonight like, like a part A that will continue on in a few weeks. And, and tonight, if it's part A, then it's Jesus as Worthy of your life. Jesus as the one who is worthy of your entire life. So I want to start off before we dive into scriptures with a question. And maybe you guys have heard this question before at some point, but I don't think that makes it any less valuable of a question to, to ask or any less of a valuable of a question for your thoughts. Uh, because this question, it, it begs to be answered, especially after we look in tonight's passage. So, so here it is. If somebody were to take you from the chair you're sitting in right now, to take you out of that chair, grab you, bind you, put you in prison for the night, and then present you in a trial tomorrow morning. As you stand before the judge and you stand before the jury, would they find you guilty of being a disciple of Christ? Would they be able to find you guilty of that? Now, remember, in our legal system, when I say guilty, I mean to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you are indeed a follower of Christ. As you're thinking of it, I want you to think about how. Like, how would they know? Like, how, how would they be able to possibly find you guilty? What kind of evidence would be found in your life and in the, the life of those that, that know you that, that would bring them to that conclusion? And would that evidence be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt? That you indeed know Jesus of Nazareth, right? The Son of God, like the one who has supposedly made you his own. Because I want to challenge you tonight that when we're thinking of this evidence, attendance at an event does not prove that you are an active part of what's going on. Here's some obvious ones. Like you, you guys go to a football game, right? It's football season. If you go to a football game, that does not necessarily make you a football player. If you go see your favorite band in concert, just because you're there and you're present, that does not make you a part of the band. A lot of you go to a Catholic school, right? So just because you attend a Catholic college, does that make you Catholic? No, it doesn't. What about, what about Augie, right? We have a few Augie students here tonight. That's a Lutheran school. Just because you go to Augie, does that make you Lutheran? No. Because simply attending something or being a part of something that belongs to a greater organization does not make you a part of it, does not make you belong, does not define you as that. 
And I say all this because I want to drive home the point that if you stand on trial and you're trying to prove that you are a disciple of Christ, just simply saying that you attend things that Christians attend and that you go to places where Jesus is moving is not enough for you to actually prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you follow Christ. Just being around Christians and in Christian things and owning Christian things like a Bible or, or music of some sort, that in itself is not enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Because there are many people in church on Sunday mornings that come and they just watch the believers worship. Anybody can open up a Bible and they can read it in their spare time. I remember when I was in college, uh, one, of my, one of my closest friends was the president of the Atheist Society on campus. I know it was weird. He was my big brother in our fraternity, and that's how we sort of hit it off. But he was, um, he was the, the president of the Atheist Society on campus. I was the president of the, the Christian Society on campus, and we were, we were best friends. But, I mean, he, w- he was serious, right? Like, he donated money to atheist causes. He held events all the time to have discussions about it. Um, he went to big conferences and spent his time and money and was absolutely and equivocally in belief that God did not exist whatsoever. But what you would be shocked to find out is that every morning when him and I would go get coffee together in like our little cafe area, he would read the Bible. I mean, that man read the Bible more than I did which, you know, already puts you to shame right there, right? But he, as an atheist, the the president of the Atheist Society read the Bible more than I did because he wanted to evaluate it. He wanted to critique it. He wanted to understand it in a way that he could argue it better than the people that said that they actually read it and believed it. So I want to ask you the question, does him reading the Bible more than I did make him more of a Christian than me? No. No, it doesn't. Because just reading it and just trying to understand it and just spending time in it does not make you a believer. So what is it then? Like, what what is enough? If we're talking about this trial, right? What What would be enough to prove that you are a follower of Christ? What would be enough to prove that you are a, a disciple? That's what we're talking about in Luke 5 tonight. So go ahead, open up your Bibles, Luke 5, if you have your Bible on you or pull it up in a device. We're actually going to be looking at just two uh, little spots in Luke 5, two verses, actually, two different spots that um, are different instances with different men involved, but they contain the exact same response to who Jesus is. Was and, and it's in that response that we're going to see the difference that we're talking about. We're going to see the answer. So Luke chapter 5, I want you to get your eyes on verse 8. And here we see Simon Peter who wrote um, and contributed to the gospel of Mark. We see Peter um, in this boat, right? And Jesus has commanded him to put down these nets and to catch these fish. And Peter has been fishing all night. 
and didn't catch anything. So much so that he's willing to tell Jesus that, like, we've been here all night and we haven't caught a thing, but okay, I'll put the nets down. And he puts them down and all of a sudden the nets are bursting with fish, so much so that the boats are being tipped over as they pull it in. What we call that nowadays is, is a miracle. Something that defies explanation or reason, that's, that's what we call a, a miracle. And that's what Peter had just seen. So Peter saw that, verses 1 through 7, and now in verse 8, we see his response. It says, but when Simon Peter saw it, saw this miracle, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I want you to really notice the, the they of this statement, right? These aren't just some rando guys. Like this is Simon, Peter, James, and John, three disciples with different lives, with different backgrounds, with probably different ambitions, different parents, different uh, ancestry, three separate men who at one point in time came to one action of leaving everything and following who Christ was. And before we dive any deeper into this passage, go ahead and skip a little bit to to verse 27. So between verse 8 and verse 27, Jesus has done some more miracles. He's done some cleansings. He's done some healings. We're going to get to Jesus as like a healer later on in this series. But um, those are the things going on. And now we see this man, this man named Levi, who we know by another name. We've come to know Levi as Matthew. Yeah, the Matthew that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And we see that he's a tax collector. More more on that in a moment. But look at verse 27 there. After this, he, Jesus, uh, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. You can probably already start seeing the similarities between the two events, right? But before we put all this together, I want to just bring this image to mind a little bit more. Because these, these passages are short, right? They contain a very simple statement. And a lot of times when we read narrative and it just doesn't contain too many adjectives and just sort of contains subjects of what's going on, we have a tendency to not let it hit home what exactly that might mean for somebody. So I want to show you just this clip. Um, it's from the TV series The Chosen. Um, A lot of you, I'm sure, have seen it. If you haven't, it's a TV series dedicated to the life of Jesus and his disciples. And this is the exact same clip of Jesus calling Matthew um, that we just read. So let's go ahead and watch it. It's two minutes long, and then we we will continue. See if we can get it up. Matthew. Matthew, son of Alphaeus. Yes. Follow me. 
Yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. So just think about what we, what we read. So just think about what we read. Those two passages and then what we just saw. Put it all together in your mind for a moment. Men just living their lives, right? Living their lives, going on in their course that society has placed for them. I mean, fishermen at sea, a tax collector collecting debt. Things that they had to, to value and cherish. Things that they had to, to live for. I mean, think about what, so Gaius is that Roman uh, guard there. Think about what he says to Matthew as Matthew's coming out of the, the text collecting booth. He says, like, are you, are you crazy? You're a tax collector. Like, you have money. You have protection from the government. You've got riches. You've got this quality of life that's better than anything that you could have around you. And are you just going to leave it all? And the powerful moment is when Matthew says, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it all. And tonight, I want you to see that it's the yes that makes all the difference. We're reading the, the the Gospel of Luke now, right? Like, well, in the Gospel of Luke, we just read how the other three writers of the Gospel—Matthew, who we just saw, John, who was in the boat, Peter, who was in the boat, and who is responsible for writing the Gospel of Mark—like. We saw the other three gospel writers, the account of how they came to know Jesus. Think about the importance of that for a minute. I mean, many of you are holding Bibles in your hands. Like the evidence of their following of Christ is literally bound in print in your hands right now. Or on a chip on your phone, right? That evidence lays right before you of men that literally said yes to Christ, that these men followed them, that these men truly left everything that they had behind to follow somebody that they didn't even know, but someone that they knew was worth it. Right now we're back to the title of the message. They saw Jesus as someone that was worthy of their life. So back to the question at the beginning. If these men stood on trial, like, 
Let's put them in the same scenario. If these men stood on trial for following Christ, like, would they be found guilty? And the answer is absolutely and resoundingly yes. Of course they would be found guilty. In fact, uh, Peter and Matthew were found guilty at trials of their own in their lives that led to their deaths. Like, they were indeed found guilty of what we're trying to evaluate ourselves right now. And what you need to see tonight is that these men were not proven to have followed Christ because they happened to attend his crucifixion. They were not proven to follow Christ because they happened to follow him around and sit in the same synagogues that he did or live with him or eat at the same tables that he did. Those were not the things that would have proven him guilty because there are hundreds of people that had the opportunity to do that in Jesus' time. Just like it can't be proven that we're Christian just by attending an event or going to a church or owning a Bible or singing worship music. No, the only way to evaluate the sincerity of our faith is to evaluate what you value in life. The sincerity of your faith can be directly measured by the value of what you're willing to lose. And if there was like one line that I would love for you to to take note on, it's that. So I'm going to say it again. The sincerity of your faith in Christ can be directly measured by the value of what you're willing to lose for him. I mean, what were were these men willing to lose? It, It says it twice, right? That's why I chose those passages, because it says that they were willing to leave everything. And now I want you to see what scripture meant by everything and and how that ties in with what I'm saying about the sincerity of your faith and it being measured by the value of what you're willing to lose. Like if you study the context of these scriptures, if you study these men's lives, like if you were to go through these gospels and find just everything you can know about Peter, everything you can know about Matthew, if you were to see that, you'd see that Peter had a wife. And even after he followed Jesus, he still had that wife. He still owned a house. If you keep your eyes on on where we just were in Luke with Levi, Matthew there, it says that he left everything to follow Jesus. But what does the next sentence say? It says that he hosted a big party at his house for Jesus. So clearly he still had a house. He still had the ability to host people. And we see that as it continues on in the gospel as well. But, but yet scripture says that they left everything to follow Jesus. So how can we put those two things together? How do we reconcile that? That they supposedly left everything, yet there was still some things left behind. And they're not the only examples. The apostle Paul still had family members that he wrote to. He still had books that he owned. He still had a business that he operated even while he was doing his ministry. The only answer is that when scripture says that the followers of Christ left everything to follow him, it wasn't referencing their physical status. Now, what I mean is, is if these men owned, they owned finite things, right? They had a finite amount of things. Like right now, if you think about how much money is in your checking account or your bank account, I would imagine that none of you could pull up your app and see a little infinity symbol next to your checking account, right? Like there is a finite amount of money that you own in the world. It exists, and at some point, you could spend enough for it to be zero. 
And if that's not you, I'd love to talk to you. We could business partnership somewhere. Anyway, so you own a finite amount of things. Spend enough and it'll be gone. But, but just for the, the sake of my illustration here, right? Let's say that Jesus called you. He found you. He called you. And he said, I want you to give up all that money and hit zero. And you listened to him. And you did that. You allowed your bank account to hit zero. I want to ask you the question, when did your sincerity of faith begin? Did it begin when the account hit zero or when you said yes to him in the first place? When did your faith begin? After the work was done or the sincerity it took to begin the work? And I would say that the sincerity of your faith began when you said yes to him. Right? Because uh, that reveals the nature of your heart. And it reveals the nature of your heart and love for Christ before a number in a bank account ever could. So, so why am I saying all this? Why, like, how does this actually relate to, to finding Christ as the one who is worthy of our lives? Well, these men, when, when Christ called them, they were not proven to be sincere based on what they were giving up. They were proven to be sincere on the fact that they were willing to give it up. And I pray you see the, the difference there tonight. Like when Scripture says that they left everything, it means that they were willing to drop anything at a moment's notice, willing to drop everything at a moment's notice because Christ had called them to himself. It means that everything they had, everything they owned, became nothing to them at the thought of who Christ was. Go back to Peter, verse 8. Chapter 5 right there. He knew who Christ was because of what? Because of what he had just seen accomplished. He just saw Jesus perform something that no man possibly could. He knew who Jesus was. And after seeing what Jesus had done and who Jesus had become in his life, his response naturally was that everything around him became nothing compared to who Jesus now was in his life. Because Jesus is the one who is worthy of our entire life. And that's what Luke is showing us here. He's showing that Christ, being who he is, was worthy of all of these men's lives. And that's what we need to see tonight. And that's the point of application. Like I told you, I always like to end my messages with points of application, something that you can do. And the thing that you can do tonight is to ask yourself the question, have you left everything to follow Christ? Now, I don't mean have you quit your school, have you sold your possessions, and have you left your family to follow him? What I mean is, would you be willing to? Right now, if Christ sat down next to you and said, quit Ambrose, follow me. Would you be willing to? Would you actually be willing to? And of course, every other school represented in here tonight as well. I just saw the St. Ambrose University had to say it. So um, everything that you have right now, everything you own, is it nothing compared to the joy of knowing Christ? Have you already left everything behind and now everything that you do 
means nothing to you at the end goal of your mission. All right, so back, back to the trial again, right? The question, if somebody had to prove to a jury that you were indeed a Christian, what would they be able to point at and say in your life makes you a Christian? And my prayer is that they would be able to look at you and say, look at this crazy person. Look at this person that doesn't value the things that they have of value. Look at this person that doesn't seek the things that we seek. Look at this person that doesn't love the same things that we love. Clearly, they must be following this Jesus guy because only people that follow him value nothing except him. They have all these worldly possessions and yet they'll trade it all for him. Clearly, they treasure him more than anything else. So I know I left you guys with a question at the end of my message, and a lot of times I do like to give you more practicalities, and I know some of you right now are sitting in a spot, you're like, you know, I really do feel like I would just follow Jesus wherever I am right now. I feel like I'm already in that spot. I don't feel like I'm in a moment where I'm ashamed. I feel like I'm in a moment where the Lord is just telling me, like, well done. So what do you do now, right? Wait till next week. <laughs> next week, Luke 6, we get to see some of the things that Jesus says we should treasure. The things that should replace all that we have that is nothing now to us. All right? And of course, we'll dive more back into what does it mean that Jesus is part of the Trinity and all these other things. And, but for now, stick with that question. Everything I own, everything I have, in a moment's notice, am I okay with it being absolutely nothing in my life?